Hi there, this is Pastor Tim. I'm the minister at Eastside Church. We are a United Methodist congregation in East Atlanta Village. We seek to be creative, historic, and inclusive. And we are thrilled that you found our podcast. If you'd like to learn more about our church community, you can visit us at www.eastsideatl.org. Well, again, good morning, church. Church scattered across the diaspora of Atlanta and beyond. As it is each Sunday, even in these slightly out of the ordinary circumstances. It is a privilege to be with you, and it is a joy to be with a small gathering of us this morning who are leading and to hopefully offer something that will be a word of encouragement, a word of challenge, a word of learning for you, wherever you may find yourself on this morning. And for those who are joining with us or maybe not familiar with where we are as a church community, um, in 2020, we embarked on something of a new teaching journey and that journey was inspired by the simple line from a much longer prayer the Apostle Paul offers on behalf of the church in Ephesus, where he prays that those believers in that place might be rooted and grounded in love. And we spent the first leg of that journey together exploring and really digging into that metaphor of groundedness, exploring what it looks like for us as a people as individuals to, to grow in our relationship with God, to grow in the way that we experience God in our lives and in our world, and what it looks like for us to be a people who are intentionally doing our part in helping our lives to grow deep roots in the soil of God's love so that more and more of our lives might actually be a reflection of an embodiment of God's world for those who are within our vicinity, in our lives, and hopefully collectively as we all seek to embody that love of God, our community continues to have a greater and greater impact on our world. Well, a couple of weeks ago, at the beginning of Lent, on Transfiguration Sunday, we shifted from the, the rooted metaphor over to the grounded metaphor. And we switched, we moved from the metaphor of farming and organics and plant life to that of architecture of engineering and communities that have something of a blueprint, a design plan, a way in which they live out and practice community together. And what we've been doing is in order to, to learn from some of the most ancient churches, the most ancient church communities, we've been looking back and asking, what are the marks? What can we learn from those ancient faith communities that came um, as a part of Jesus' movement? began with the disciples on Transfiguration. We looked then to the church in Jerusalem and those churches that were birthed through the amazing events of Pentecost. And this morning, we, we look at the Corinthian church, the Corinthian community, and a couple of, of words about the body of uh, letters that we have in the New Testament. There, there's two letters that we have recorded from the Apostle Paul, who was the founder, the one who planted the Corinthian church to this community. But scholars say that they, we have evidence, textual evidence, of at least four letters that were written between Paul and the Corinthians, which means that Paul had quite a relationship with this community and was very invested in their thriving as a church community. And But at a bigger picture, as we seek to, to sit with a text this morning and to learn from this ancient community about the architecture of what it might look like for us to learn from them. 
there's at least a year's worth, if not more, sermons that could be easily written between 1st and 2nd Corinthians. These are both long letters. There's a lot of heavy lifting that Paul does in them, and there's just a lot going on. So this morning, instead of trying to give you some kind of a, a thorough treatment of all of the themes or important pieces that happen in 1st and 2nd Corinthians, I'm not going to do that. Instead, I'm going to zero in on a text that really reached out to me um, as it sort of directly relates to what we've been talking about this prayer that Paul wrote for the Ephesian church and our rooted and groundedness. And as I, as I worked through personally, first and second Corinthians, this text just, just struck me as um, one that A, I never preached from and never really sat with and walked through, but B, one that I actually think has a lot to say uh, to our world today and to our Christian fellowships, to our politics, to the way we organize as communities of people and the way we relate to one another. And I think that as I read it, you may get a little bit more of where I, how I arrived at that place. So friends, I know that um, some of you are with your families, huddled up in bed in your PJs watching this morning. Others of you are probably sipping great coffee somewhere. Others um, may be sitting in your living room. Um, so I'm not this morning going to invite you to stand, but I will invite you in, in heart and in mind to rise in reverence as we together reflect on the reading of Holy Scripture. And as I read from 1 Corinthians chapter 3, I invite you to listen for the Word of God. Paul writes to this ancient community, beginning in verse 5 of chapter 3, What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants. Servants through whom you came to believe, as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Paulus watered, but God gave the growth. Neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything. Only God who gives growth. The one who plants and the one who waters have a common purpose. Each will receive wages according to the labor of each. For we are God's servants, working together. You are God's field, God's According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master, I laid a foundation. Someone else is building on it. Each builder must choose with care how to build on it. No one can lay any foundation other than the one that has been laid. And that foundation is Jesus the Christ. If anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, the work of each builder will become visible, for the day will disclose it. It will be revealed with fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each has done. If what has been built on the foundation survives, the builder will receive a reward. If the work is burned, then the builder will suffer loss. The builder will be saved, but only as though through a fire. Do you not know that you are God's temple, and that God's Spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy that person. For God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. Friends, word of God for us, the people of God. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. And gracious God, I ask that we are spread across this 
planet and across the state, across the city, across the east side of Atlanta, in these moments that you would draw us together. That by your spirit, you would bring us to a place of oneness in heart, and thought, and mind, and an attentiveness in listening for your word for us. And God, as we do that, I pray that these words that I have prepared might indeed be your word for your people in this time. And God, I ask that as I preach them, you may speak through them, and as and where necessary, you would speak in spite of me. God, may the words of my mouth and the collective meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing, right, and acceptable in your sight. God, our rock, our redeemer, God, our savior, God, our master builder. Crown us in the strong name of Christ Jesus, our Lord. I know that the comments feature is on, which is on one hand a little bit terrifying for somebody standing up here in my situation. At the same time, it is a beloved opportunity for you to offer um, some commentary or thoughts or just simply amens as we walk through the sermon together. And so I encourage you to be with one another. I don't know what you're saying. I was trying to see if I could fit my phone up here while I preach and I'm not inside. That'd be best if I don't do that. So. <laughs> I'm going to try my best to be fully present with you wherever you are, and I encourage you to be present with one another. And I want us to begin this morning with this text in mind by seeing if each of you might be able to remember. And I think this will translate probably across all the way even down to maybe our kindergartners. Uh, a time or an experience where you, you observed or you experienced someone receiving credit or something they did not do. Whatever the circumstances might have been, can you think of a time in your life, maybe this past week, where someone, maybe in a workplace, maybe in a school situation, maybe in a family or a sibling, where someone received the credit by a person, maybe an authority or another human being, for something that you knew that they did not do? Maybe they received credit for something that you did, and you were not affirmed in that. Maybe you were aware of who should have gotten the credit, but you weren't directly involved, but you watched it happen. Maybe you were the person in a position of, of, of offering praise or credit to someone, and you made a mistake, and you later realized what had happened. In all those different scenarios where credit has been misapplied to the wrong person, intentionally or unintentionally, I want you to just try to think back to what you felt. What emotions did it bring about inside of you? What did it make you feel like to experience, however it took place, that credit being misapplied? My guess is that whatever position you might have found yourself in that scenario, most likely it didn't produce good feelings probably didn't produce a sense of tranquility, or of peace, or of joy, or just overwhelming happiness, and I really bet it didn't bring about the feelings of fulfillment and feelings of satisfaction, regardless of how you relate to the scenario. And I think this is because most of us humans we kind of intuit the truth in that sort of obvious statement that we ought to Give credit where credit is due. And 
I'm not sure what it is exactly about this topic and conversation, but whether we're in the place of the one who was wronged, or we were a knowing bystander, or we were the accidental wrongdoer, participating in this scenario in any way just kind of feels gross. In the comments section, can I get an amen? Because <laughs> there is, right? Like, there's just like a profound sense of injustice to the whole thing. Part of the reason that a broken criminal justice system should cause us such, such distress when we're not sure if people are being tried and convicted properly. On the other hand, it's why it causes such distress when in the workplace the wrong person gets the accolade and it's just something's wrong, something's off, something's out of sync. I begin with this morning because I think that it albeit a very human way in, I think it gives us kind of a really helpful end to Paul's correspondence that he's having with this Corinthian community in this part of his first letter. And I think that it's part of his correspondence, and I know that myself, as I've read it in the past, have, have kind of had to take a step back and wonder what's really going on, because you can kind of read a text in an interaction like this one from multiple different directions and really genuinely wonder what exactly is taking place. One might guess or wonder if Paul is jealous of this man, Apollos. For one thing, because he's named Apollos and Paul's not. In a more serious note, maybe Paul's ego has actually been bruised in some way by the ministry of, or at least the, the word that he's received of the ministry that the, that the man Apollos is conducting with the church that Paul founded, the Corinthian community. In a sex, is Paul being offensive? Maybe Paul feels that an injustice has been served to his investment, his ministry, his contribution among the Corinthians. And he feels like, for whatever reason now, he's not being given the appropriate respect and the acknowledgement for the work that he has founded and that he has developed through the time he spent with this Corinthian community. Is Paul envious? Is he jealous? Is he defensive? Or is there something else going on in Paul's words this morning? The more I dove into sort of the culture and the rhetoric and the, what was sort of going on in Corinth, more broadly speaking, outside of this church, I understood quickly from a sort of like a human psychological perspective very possibly exactly what was going on in this text. And not just in this text, but actually kind of woven throughout First and Second Corinthians, and I'll say more about that later. But the city of Corinth, it was actually a really interesting place. Um, seated, kind of in an inlay of, of, um, of water where ships could come in, so there was a ton of trade that took place in Corinth. But bigger picture than that, um, you may or may not know that, that Corinth was actually destroyed. It was raised by the Romans in 146 BC. And it wasn't until 44 BC that a whole new city was built by the Roman Empire. And this is important because it means that by the 50s, and Paul's writing in Corinthians somewhere, you know, around 55 CE, that means that their city was only 100 years old, which really isn't that old 
when you think about the fact that you have Athens over here and you have Rome over here. It means that they didn't have a long-established sort of social and religious hierarchy in that community. Things were weirdly level, and things were interestingly transient, maybe not completely unlike what we experience in a place like Atlanta today. Constantly new influx of people, cultures kind of colliding and enmeshing, all of these different dynamics with different people groups, languages. Everything's kind of moving and swirling. They're a port city. And this truly kind of has the feel of the classic Hellenistic melting pot, right? Freedom of thought and religious perspectives, all kinds of different ethnicities and ideas coming from different parts of the world and converging in Corinth. And what this meant was that in Corinth there was sort of like unique intellectual, cultural situation that was happening. And what that was was that an individual could, could sort of come to Corinth and offer their perspective, and if they were charismatic and engaging enough, in Corinth it was known that you could create a following. It was kind of a marketplace of ideas that had enough space and potential that you wouldn't just be immediately locked out like you might in a, like a high, high intellectual center like Athens or just a traditional Roman reality like the city of Rome where you have to kind of know the right people, but in Corinth, this newer city that had been rebuilt, that was this hub, you could come and you could make a name for yourself. I was thinking about this, and some of you have heard Malcolm Gladwell's language, but I get the sense that this was a city with a whole lot of early adopters. People who were willing to try things, people who were open to new ideas, and who would get behind someone if they were charismatic, interesting, and compelling enough. That was the culture that was surrounding the ancient church in Corinth. The culture where people were open, they were interested, they were intrigued, they wanted to learn, they wanted to find interesting people to follow, to get behind. It was a true sort of competitive marketplace of ideas. And this meant that in that world, in that culture, maybe not completely forward from our world and culture today, the way that you could present your ideas in the format of live presentation with real humans matter. How influential, how rhetorical, how you could, could bring people into your ideas and compel them in a, in a sort of live oratory manner really mattered. And there was actually like a sense of competition. One person would sort of rise up to challenge another thinker, would rise up to challenge someone else. And this whole like, sensibility, it was embraced, it was encouraged, it was normal and foreign. It's just the way things were. It was expected. So now think about this. Let's just place this backdrop with Paul's correspondence with the Corinthians. And think about now this letter sort of framed in this broader framework of the sort of competitive force of personalities and ideas as Paul's trying to speak to this church that he hasn't been present with in some time. I think it changes and reframes the way that we engage this text because I don't actually think Paul's jealous or envious. I don't think that's really what's going on. I think what Paul is trying to do is to help the Corinthians understand a much larger picture of this whole interworking of the mechanics and the body of Christ, the architecture of Christian community. 
In verse 5, Paul rhetorically and probably um, slightly sarcastically writes, what is then Apollos? It would be like who, Paul, but what is Apollos? What is Paul? So he's throwing himself right in there with it. He's not sort of, sort of singling out Apollos. He's presenting the two of them on the same plane. Apparently there was this guy named Apollos who was another ancient church leader. And it appears to be the case that in person, Apollos had charisma and he had persona. And he was considerably more impressive, I guess, than was Paul's. If we read between the lines of Paul's argument, there seems to be a subtext in play that the church in Corinth, at least parts of the church in Corinth, really, really are attracted to and, and, and appreciate the magnetism of Apollos. It seems as though Paul, on the other hand, he may have struggled a little bit in person with people. In fact, there's kind of a pretty overwhelming amount of textual evidence that would lead us to believe that Paul was absolutely brilliant. No one argues with Paul's brilliance, his scholarly um, adeptness, adeptness, his his rootedness in the ancient Jewish tradition and scriptures. He was a Pharisee, he's a Pharisee. Paul knew his stuff, he knew ancient philosophy, he knew theology, he could write beautifully if not using a few too many run-on sentences in Greek. But he could write beautifully. He was an ideas guy. He really was. He, he thought on this big cosmic level. And he was a wonderful pastor. He loved people. That comes through in his writing over and over and over. He writes these gorgeous, eloquent prayers to these church communities. And, and one of these prayers that we've been living in since the beginning of the year. But it also appears to be the case that he wasn't the best public speaker. He wasn't the best one-on-one with people. I wonder if sometimes his ideas were so big and so cosmic and so trying to draw so many pieces together that when he was sitting with people or speaking with people, he would lose them, speak over their heads, get stuck in certain spots. Paul seems to have been more effective with pen and paper, not pen, quill and paper. <laughs> There's a kind of comic story in the backs where Paul is preaching to a gathering and he goes on so long that the guy sitting in the window still falls asleep and falls out of the window to his death. And then Paul has to go outside and bring him back to life. Paul preached somebody to death in the book of Acts. So while Paul, on the one hand, may have lacked in his public persona in sort of the cultural currency of Corinth, it seems as if maybe the opposite was true for Apollos. Subtext seem to be that in Corinth there's sort of this divisiveness that has been brewing. We don't have time frames for how long or exactly what's going on. But the fact that Paul uses the phrase in another place, I follow Paul, well, I follow Apollos, and Paul makes the argument, were you baptized into Paul or baptized into Apollos? What are you what are you talking about? You don't follow Paul, you don't follow Apollos, Apollos, you follow God in Christ. And here's the thing about Paul. He could have gone to Jerusalem and carried a lot of weight because he was a Jew, Jew, he was a Pharisee. He could go to Rome and carry weight because he was a Roman citizen and he could argue up and down the philosophical um, rhetoric of that day. But in a place like Corinth, they probably didn't really care. They, probably didn't really know, they may have known distantly what a Pharisee was. 
But for them, that wasn't that important in this sort of melting pot culture. So what Paul's having to do, because he has really important things to tell the Corinthians in these two letters, is he has to remind them or find some way to bring them to a place where they'll listen to him. Where they'll actually give him a hearing, because he has some really important things to speak to. I mean, in First and Second Corinthians, Paul speaks to the Eucharist, the Holy Communion, and he says, the way it's being celebrated in the Corinthian church is the, the people with money and wealth are bringing their food to the table, and they're eating while those who are hungry or struggling are coming to the table with nothing, and, and they're not being shared with. Which means some are going away stuffed, while others are going away with empty stomachs at the Eucharist. Paul speaks to the importance of, of, of Christ's resurrection and the implications that that has on so so much of what we believe about the present and the future. Paul preaches about the importance and the understanding of suffering in the Christian life and context and how to interpret suffering in our lives and what that says about our community and our God and all kinds of other things, but he also speaks to the depth and the breadth and the importance of love. And it undergirds everything Paul writes. Love undergirds everything Paul does. And you can see it in the way he writes in this text. Because what does Paul not do? What does Paul never do? Paul never throws any shade on Apollos. Why not? Why doesn't he do that? He doesn't undermine him. He doesn't undercut him. He doesn't say a bad thing about him. He doesn't undermine Apollos' contribution. Paul doesn't attempt to make Apollos look small so that Paul can look a little bit bigger. He never says that Apollos isn't all the things that the Corinthian church may believe him to be. Come well, Paul's human. He probably is a little bit hurt, maybe feeling a little bit defensive. Who wouldn't, right? But instead of trying to sort of place his defensiveness in the text, instead of attacking Apollos, Paul goes the route of attempting to be a teacher. He tries to bring him along. He tries to give him a different way of looking at the whole thing instead of simply trying to play the same game. Paul teaches the Corinthians something about God's desire and architecture for the church community, and he simply assumes that Apollos is a wonderful minister doing wonderful work on behalf of the gospel. But Apollos' awesomeness does not mean that Paul is now irrelevant or unworthy of a listening by the Corinthian community. And his, his argument is not that anybody is better or more important than anyone else, that he's higher in some way so they ought to listen to him. His point is actually the opposite. Paul's point is that both he and Apollos, as well as every single member of the Corinthian community, are all in this together, working together, and shared mission. This is why Paul writes in verse 5, What then is Apollos? What's Paul? He goes on to answer his rhetorical question, or maybe sarcastic question. We're servants through whom you all came to believe as the Lord assigned to us. Paul says, I planted, Apollos watered, but who gave the birth? God. I mean, if I plant seed and then I have to leave and go on a trip abroad, if the person that I ask to come and water the seed after me doesn't do it, it doesn't matter how hard I work planting that seed. It really doesn't. Like, all of my work is for naught if 
the other participant doesn't participate in the way that they commit to. Paul goes on to write that neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. In other words, even if two humans work really hard together, one plants, one waters, it still takes God to join with that human work in collaboration to make it grow. We are God's servants working together. You are God's field, God's building. I love that. You are God's field and God's building. Paul, you just totally mixed your metaphors again, and I love it. <laughs> but really, you see the brilliance of what the apostle has done here. He is working to, to correct a misunderstanding of, a, of authority in their community, not by propping anybody up and not by attacking anyone. He's just trying to shift the framework of the conversation, and he does so by, by using and utilizing and re-employing our two big metaphors that we've been living with in 2020 through this prayer for the Ephesian church that we're going to study later. Rooted and grounded, Paul mixes the metaphors of field and architecture. He teaches that the Corinthian church, it's not, it's not an arena, y'all. It's not an arena for religious or philosophical one-upping one another. It's not a place for competing charismatic leaders to battle it out, for you to take sides this, the, the Apollos, no, I'm with Paul. It's like you're missing the whole point. Paul waters the seed that I plant. We're on the same team. We are on the same team. Dump your arena analogy altogether, people. Just, that's not us. We're field. We're architecture. We're construction site. And he doesn't just leave it at that. He says, and by the way, none of us are. God is the farmer, God is the landowner, God is the architect, God is the master planner. It's not Paul, it's not Paulos. It all belongs to God. Which means that the church friends across our world is not possessed by any one pastor, any one church planter or founder, by any priest, by any committee, by any congregation. No church even has self-possession. We don't own ourselves. No denomination has self-possession. Our denomination does not own itself. That's Paul's point. It's all God's. The church is God's. And we're all in this together, like it or not. We are all in this together. God is the landowner, the architect, the contractor, we're the workers, we're the group. The church is a beautiful field. The church is a magnificent piece of architecture under construction. We're the workers. For the last couple of months, we've been getting some work done around our house, so this uh, uh, contractor metaphor really works for me because we've had workers in and out of our house now for three-plus months getting this work done. And our contractor from the very beginning, our house was a very creative project. It's a very old home with lots of crooked walls and crooked floors, which means you have to have someone that can bring a little bit of wisdom, not just a ruler and angles. And so the contractor had a vision for how this could happen, but as contractors do, he's also working on multiple projects simultaneously, which means that there are lots of large chunks of time when he has to leave his foreman in charge of the crew who's doing the work, and he has to go to another site. He has to entrust a project that legally belongs to him. It's under his license, it's under his insurance, 
It's his name, it's his reputation, it's his company. But he's not there. His foreman is there, and the crew is working under the foreman. And he's just hoping that the ideas inside of his mind have translated and transferred into the ideas inside of the mind of his foreman, so that the foreman can guide and direct the work of his workers. And I think this is precisely the image that Paul is trying to offer the Corinthian church. The church, friends, is God's vision, it's God's mission. God is the architect, God is the master planner. God entrusts human beings, whether we be a foreman or a worker or a subcontractor, God entrusts human beings to do the construction in the real world in real churches. The moment we begin to get, um, how do I say this? The moment we begin to think that because we have participatory role in building it, that now it's somehow like ours, somehow we claim it is ours, is the moment that I think Paul would be like, hold the phone, take a step back, it's all God's. We are invited to participate, we are invited to be a part, at the end of the day, the church is God's. Corinthian church isn't Paul's any more than it is Paul's. Any more than it belongs to the Corinthian leadership. The plans are the plans. The vision is God's vision. The mission is God's vision. And all of that begins back with Christ, his disciples, and the resurrection movement. It began and begins on Easter. It's about faithful workmanship. Paul's saying, y'all both Apollos and I, we've been trying to pull our weight together. We're on the same team. We're not pulling against each other. And we want each of you, Corinthians, to be a part of it. The design comes from God, but we get the privilege and the calling to seek the faithful implementation of God's architecture in the real world as we build churches, as we build ministries, as we build organizations, as we build nonprofits as we build any reality that contributes to the larger building of God's kingdom and God's reign here on this planet. Here's the thing, like, if you just think about a building and a contractor, if he has to hire a sub to come in and do the bathroom, or to put up the framing of the drywall, or do the plumbing of the electric, nobody cares how charismatic the electrician is. They just want to make sure that they do the job really well. And if they do the job really well, then the next crew can come in and build on that work. And that's a really beautiful image of a local church and of the body of Christ. We do our part, not for us, but just to contribute to the whole, to make it a beautiful, a good, a true, a temple for the divine. According to the grace of God given to me, Paul writes, like a skilled master, I laid the foundation. Someone else built on each builder must choose with care how to build on it. No one can lay any foundation other than the one that has been laid. And for us, that foundation is Jesus the Christ. In other places, Jesus is referred to as the cornerstone, the initial building block upon which the entire structure is built. The Paul's point here is that it doesn't really matter who does the building. What matters is whether or not we're doing it faithfully and whether or not we're at least trying to follow the Whoever does the framing or the electric or the plumbing or the drywall, as long as it's done well, it doesn't matter how charismatic the person doing the work is. It matters if we're seeking to be faithful. 
And if we're doing the work with the intent to participate in the whole, it doesn't matter if it's Apollos or Paul, but celebrate that it got built in the first place. So let's praise God for the person who is willing to be faithful and to offer a part of their life in participating in the structure of God's kingdom. I think about this with this space. 36,000 square feet, part of this part of this building are over 100 years old. So many people, so much faithful work went into the reality that we, as a fresh church plant, not even 10 years old, can participate in this work. We're literally standing on these beautiful wood floors in this space because people cared enough to participate. I don't know what all their names are, but, but God does, and that's Paul's point. If a fire comes through, the parts that will make it forever are the parts that were done. This is where it comes full circle. The part where the faithful work and the following plan meets with a place of love. When those two come together, you're making something that will last forever into eternity. Sometimes it's simply our calling to be faithful, to be faithful to the plan, to be faithful to the calling, to be faithful to the work that God has set before us. Sometimes our role, and I know we don't always like to hear this, but I think it's especially important right now, given the state of our world and our country and what's being offered to us by places like the World Health Organization, the CDC, sometimes we just need to listen to the instructions that are being given and wash our hands. And if we can work remotely to do so, sometimes we just really do need to listen and do what we're asked. Amen. Paul's point is that when a community collectively follows the architectural design of the project, it can have wonderful superstars like Apollos. That's great. It's great to have Apollos on the team. You need them. But as Kim Scott describes, you also need rock stars. Those people on your team, like a Paul, who has this remarkable proficiency and ability, and whatever their role might be. They might be a Sunday school teacher. They might be the cleaner. They might be the person who does the books. They might be the person who leads the youth ministry, or, or loves on the kids, or makes the coffee, or sits on the board of trustees and helps us make big decisions about the building. You need superstars, for sure, to keep things moving and keep things catalyzed. But you need rock stars, more like the bedrock are willing to, to be there day in and day out and do the work, and do it well and do it faithfully. Paul says, he pretty much equates himself to like one of the least sexy construction parts of the job. I'm the concrete guy. You know, I'm bidding on concrete back then, but that's basically, I'm the cement guy. I'm going to pour the foundation. I'm going to make sure that everything gets built on a solid base. The gospel reading this morning was sageless through Jesus talked about the house that's built by the wise person built on rock. We need them both. We need Paul, we need Apollos. We need more than that, and that's Paul's point. We need everybody. We need everyone to contribute because whether or not we know where our place is and how we're called to contribute, we are all called to contribute. And the first step for us is to be asking the question maybe where? If I show up to a Habitat build, there are certain jobs you don't want me on. Trust me. There are other things in that build that I can participate in and I can be helpful in. Same is true in the church community. Same is true in the, the big picture worldwide church and all of our diversity, our denominations, our different ways of being. 
And to bring it full circle, everyone, of course, deserves a thank you. Deserves a thank you for the way that they participate in the whole. From the children's ministry to cleaning the building to being a parking attendant, it all deserves thanks. Paul's point is that none of us should be doing it primarily for the thanks of the affirmation. Paul says that our, our part in the whole, it's regardless of credit being given, it's regardless of any of that. Paul says the point ought to be that it comes from a place of love, it comes from a place of faithfulness to God. And here's where I think Paul really draws together both of these letters in a really beautiful way. And we're, we're generally used to hearing this text at weddings, but spoiler alert, 1 Corinthians 13 was not written for a couple, and it was not written for weddings. It was actually written for a whole church community, the love chapter. And Paul's point in the first section where he says that if he speaks in the tongues of mortals and of angels, see what he's doing there? He's referring back to Apollos. I speak in the tongues of mortals and of angels, but I don't have love. I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. As I was thinking about this metaphor, I could not help but think of a conductor who's like, I didn't write the music, you all, but I need you to play it. Like, I need you to do your part. I know you're trying to be creative over here in the brass section, but you're, you're, you're killing Mozart. You know, like, where, y'all, I didn't write it, but I need you to play it. And sometimes I think that... We need to hear that as the body. And sometimes we just need to hear, like, we just need to all work together so that the whole can come together in the way that it needs to be. Paul says that sometimes we can, we can act in a way that even looks loving, but if it's not actually done from a place of love, then we're like a noisy gong or a clanging symbol. He says you can have prophetic powers, you can understand all mysteries, all knowledge, and have all faith so as to move mountains. But if you don't have love, none of it matters. He says, I can give away all of my possessions, and if I hand over my body so that I may boast, see what he's doing there, he's referring back to the whole credit thing. And I don't have love, then he says, I gave nothing. Love is the reality that undergirds the entirety of 1st and 2nd Corinthians, and it's all related to why we're doing what we're doing, how we're doing what we're doing. I'll leave you with the idea that maybe for Paul, if you're returning to construction metaphors, it's the fasteners. Love is the fasteners for the whole structure. The screws, the nails, the beams, whatever brings the whole temple together is the love of God. And, and all of it which gets fastened together, interwoven with the love of God, will hold together in a way that will last forever. What we build in love is Paul's bigger argument. What we build in love, what we do in love, how we love is what last forever and it's what's worth doing. Whether it's being an amazing gifted orator like Apollos, whether it's being the theologian and the pastor like Paul, whether it's being the whole massive host of ways that we can participate in the church and the body of Christ and the work together as a community, whether it be, and I'll end with this, the church, because we watched, of course, making a public decision to say we're going to not gather in bodily form for right now because we believe that's actually the, the most loving thing that we can do as a community. 
for the world, for humanity. So we're going to wash our hands because that's what they said to do. Amen? Amen. In the comments section, everyone said, Amen. <laughs> well, friends, normally at this time of service, we would um, pass offering baskets. And if you were with us last Sunday, then you know that um, we did not pass offering baskets because obviously um, passing anything right now from human hands to human hands probably isn't the best practice. So thankfully, we are set up for digital um, contributions. You can go to eastsideatl.org backslash give. Is that right, Katie? Yep. Backslash, uh, backslash support. Support. Just posted it. And there's plenty of instructions on there if you'd like to figure out how it looks to um, to give online. It's actually very easy. We try to make it as simple as possible. But in this season, we are going to be doing the majority of our, obviously, of our giving will be done um, in that format. So we encourage you, if you've never tried it, to participate in that way. Um, and let me pray and ask God to bless the gifts of us together. Wherever you may be, fire into Creator God, God has a place, a passion, a role, a way for each and every one of us in this community, in this collective, and across this world with your body, God, to contribute, to be a part. We pray, God, that you help us to get organized, to work together, to work well together, that we would be a witness, God, to the broader world of how human beings can, how we can, God, move forward as a community for the betterment of all. So God, I pray that you would take the gifts that have already been given online this week and that are about to be given in this time and that you use them for the sake of your kingdom to grow and to nourish and to um, empower this church community so that God, we might uh, have what we need, have the strength, have the overflow and abundance to turn outward and to love and to serve the community in which we find ourselves here in East Atlanta and our world beyond that. May you bless these gifts and may you bless these side in Christ's name. Pray amen. Well, we hope that you've enjoyed this week's message and we look forward to seeing you soon. If you listen from afar and you would like to support the work that we are doing in East Atlanta and on Atlanta's east side, you can visit our website, www.eastsideatl.org and find our giving portal there.